Today I'm talking to Ambrose and Greed, master wood turners. We talk about the craft and the philosophy behind the creative arts. Ambrose began wood turning in 1993. He's interested in craft education. His belief is that stated by W.B. Yeats. Education is not filling a pail, but lighting a fire. His articles have been published by the former International Wood Turning Centre in Philadelphia, now the Centre for Wood Art. Ambrose believes that craft is the bridge between technology and art. He believes without a deep insight into the philosophy of the craft, any maker only possesses motor and dexterity skills. For craft to have real meaning and depth and relevance, it needs to have soul. All of these facts, making, teaching, writing and demonstrating, reinforce each other and help to make him a better maker, a better teacher and most of all, a better student. He describes himself as a true student of the woodturning field. Breed began woodturning in the year 2000. She makes functional items and one-off pieces of jewellery. She likes making small pieces as she's interested in exploring the shared qualities between wood turning and jewellery and using small pieces of wood with an interesting grain. As she works, she enjoys revealing the unique beauty of each piece of wood. Often hidden on the back of the piece is some little detail put there for the wearer's enjoyment only. Most of the pieces are made from native Irish woods. So hello Ambrose, it's lovely to see you again and I'll give you a little introduction to everyone before we start this but I have done two courses with Ambrose now and they are absolutely brilliant. Um, so can you tell everybody what you do and what your craft is? Hello Mary, it's lovely to see you again. Um, I'm Ambrose, I'm with my wife Bridge. We run a wood turning business and our business comprises of doing craft courses, teaching, working for shops, uh, doing corporate awards, and doing trade turning, like fixing antiques and so on. That's the gist of the business. So the two courses I did, I did spindle turning, and then I got a little bit confident, or maybe did I do three? No, no, I did two. I did two, yeah. Confused. It was just before lockdown. Uh, the last one I did was the bowl turning course. And since then, I went home and I have made six bowls. And Ambrose has been amazing, helping me sharpen the tools and source the timber and everything like that. So it's been very, very fulfilling occupation. Um, so how did you start or what interested you in the wood turning originally? So, without getting too long-winded, I worked as a technical officer at the university for 41 years. And I worked mostly with computers and data and data processing. And when you do that kind of work, it mostly involves staring at a screen. So, probably around 30 years ago now, because time goes by, I had a, an urge or a need to do something more creative. So instead of staring at a screen for eight hours and seeing nothing, to actually spend something for doing it for ourselves and actually see something tangible. So that, that was the key. That was yeah, I totally, I totally understand because the actual process of wood turning is really lovely. It's like um, meditation or mindfulness because your hands and your 
brain are all engaged, and then you get a beautiful object at the end. So what drew you to wood? Um, it's by chance, in a way. So all my family, if you, if you were to look at my dad and my uncles and grandfathers, they were all carpenters. But I was the black sheep, and I didn't want to know anything about wood when I was young. Um, and by chance, as I was having this inkling of doing something a little bit creative, I got to see um, a ball turner, a really brilliant ball turner, who unfortunately has passed away now. That was Kieran Forbes from Glenstall Abbey. And what clicked with me wasn't the magic of seeing something just being produced. It was the intellectual approach. That this was more than just shaping a piece of wood round. There was a real thought process to it. And that kind of linked into my science background and so on. And those two things together. Yeah, and I think that's why you're such a good teacher, because you're very steady with all the details and with the utmost patience, as if you love the information, which you clearly do. And it makes it very easy for the person learning then to take it step by step or even say, you know, could you go back a step? Um, so I think that really is a gift of yours. And do you have a particular favourite type of timber, either of you actually, um, that you'd like to speak about or what kind of wood are you drawn to? Generally, generally try use native timber. Partly that's a philosophy that it's native and it's what was used. And partly, um, even though it's, it, people are getting more conscious of it now, why would you want to use some exotic timber that's been imported from halfway around the, the world? It just, doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. So to answer your question, we mostly use beech, some ash, some walnut, yeah, a little bit of ellum. I use a little bit of ellum, but it's rare enough to get now, but it is starting to come back a little bit. But there's the Irish witch ellum, which is beautiful as well. So they're really the main, main ones that we use. And do you have a favourite tree, despite the favourite timber? Is there certain trees that draw your attention? Mm, for me, for me, no. Um, because... If you walk through a wooded land where there's, where there's uh, mature trees, that besides the form and just the presence of the tree, it's the wind rustling through the trees. That's my favourite sound of the word. So no particular tree is just, just, just being the with the trees. For me, um, I'd be different. Um, I like the ash and the beech. And I'd like them particularly at this time of the year because before they come into leaf, you can actually see the real form of the tree. And it's lovely and you see it silhouetted against the sky. That's what I, I love. I love yeah, yeah, the I, ash and the, and the, the beach. Yeah. yeah, I understand that yeah. too. When you're yeah. just walking below it and you see yes. that. Or even just driving along and you just see a tree in, in the field. It's, yeah. yeah, beautiful. Just to place people, if you might be listening to this in the future, I had to pull in on the way here. And the blackthorn is just um, oh, blossoming. Yeah, just starting. Yeah. Yeah. Just starting yeah. to blossom. So yeah, it's spring. Beautiful. The blackthorn is the yeah. first one really yes, to go. It is, yeah. Um, yeah. 
uh, flower comes before the leaves even. Yes. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So how do you feel about the ash? We have the ash dieback. Um, we have it on the farm. There's 25 acres, pretty much all ash. And I've had to come to terms with it. My heartbreak is yeah. over now. I'm, I've yeah. had kind of accepted it. How do you feel about that? It's terrible. Yeah, it really is terrible. But, you know, nature has cycles. So, like Rach mentioned earlier, the elm is hard to get. So in the, in the 60s, it was um, elm. Dutch elm disease. And people, just like you say, are just obviously disappointed and heartbroken. But then they tend to overreact as well. So maybe there's um, um, a, a forest or a, a collection of trees that are affected and 10, up, 10 miles up the road they're not, but people start panicking and start cutting down the good, good stuff. And that happened with the elm disease, mm -hmm. is that they cut down brand new saplings and then when they did more research to discover that this thing had happened in cycles over thousands of years and it's just cyclical. It's awful when it happens, terrible, so much beautiful uh, wood being destroyed, but there is a cycle to it. There is a cycle and part of the way that I've come to terms with it is the ecological value for habitats of the deadwood mm -hmm. and because we've got a lot of trees that aren't beside a path or a road, we're not going to take any trees down. Um, so then there's more opportunities for maybe owls to make a nest yeah. or, you know, insect like mosses, yeah. fungus yeah. or whatever. Yeah, it does beautiful to feel what is behind your whole business. Like it's really cool. The people talk about authenticity the whole time. It comes from a very real place. Um, I'm desperate to ask you now about creativity. <laughs> so can you give me your views on that? Well, it's like what I said about the museum earlier, that if you look back in tradition, that if you had a pot or a stool or whatever and it broke, there was no Argus or Ikea to go to. More than that, it was probably made by somebody local and might even be in your family. So you weren't going to just throw this out and buy, buy a new one. And then you had to develop skills to, to, mend, to, to mend it. So creativity sometimes gets put up on a pedestal as something else. It's simply just the ability to look at things and fashion them into something else. That's simplest, that's, that's what it is. So to me, people can be creative in a value number of ways. I say they can even be creative on a computer if they really think. Mm. So it's just about a way of thinking and expressing. The thing about doing a craft and expressing your creativity, though, is like we said earlier, is that you're allowing yourself to um, fashion something. If I go if I go sideways for a second, mm. allow me. One of the consequences of the Industrial Revolution was that it separated the designer from the maker. Mm -hmm. Before then, if you wanted your table, you went down to the local carpenter and he listened to, this, to you, he measured the size of the kitchen that was going into or whatever it was. So he was the designer and the maker. After the Industrial Revolution, what happened is there was no designer 
and somebody was given a drawing or a plan. And at its worst, when you think of assembly lines, you didn't even make the whole object, you made a component of it. And what craft does is that it puts that back, it makes you the designer and the maker. And why is that so valuable for the human psyche, I suppose? This creative, you know, you had this urge, this sort of void in your work that you knew you had to fill somewhere. How? Because if you, if we take the mobile phone that we all now have, there's very, very few people, if you sit them down and tell you how that works. They all know how to use it. They know, they know how to get through their daily tasks. But I, I was thinking about that. I thought, um, you know, perhaps there'd be some kind of a meteor strike on the Apple factory and everybody, all the scientists and engineers would be, you know, wiped out. And we'd be sitting there with these phones saying, we have no idea how this happened. <laughs> we'd never be able to recreate it. So, in, in a way, and Rachel laugh at me now when I say this, it's about control, that you're taking back control. Um, you're not... Um, See, if I go full technological and we put in a CNC machine, I'm sure we can now write all the code and we press a button and the object is made, but it's like the phone, you're not in control. You're, it's nothing to do with you, really. might be a lot of skill in setting up the code, but it's nothing to do with you, really. And what craft does is that it makes you in control. It allows you to do a full range of, exp of expression. In the real world, there may be failures along the way, mm. but that's where you learn. You learn from the failures. If if you could just, the first day you picked up a tool and it just worked for you, well, that's like pressing the button on the phone. Oh, there's, there's no challenge. There's no challenge. And the challenge is, I haven't turned a bowl for ages. And then just before Christmas, somebody said, oh, I want a bowl for Christmas. And I thought, well, I have a perfect blank. And I put it on the lathe. And, I looked at the tools, I was thinking, Ambrose, please, you know, inspire me. And I turned the lathe on and I had totally lost confidence and I'd forgotten the hold. And, you know, so yeah. this, this is it. But um, before we go off track, what does creativity mean to you, Breach? Um, I think it's just being able to express yourself. Just the whole thing for me is the, just the making, you know, and I say to people when they come in a course and they say, oh, I'm not creative. And they say, well, you know, everybody makes something, you know. Um, if you make bread, that's making, you know, you're happy with that. And I think it's just, I think it's just that the, the enjoyment of it and then the fulfilment at the end that you've actually made something. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And then the confidence um, that you were talking about before people think they aren't creative. Mm. And I, I know there's a saying, I probably get it totally wrong, but Zen, you know, you have to do something a thousand times. So if you want to be an archer, you practice your skill a thousand times and then it's muscle memory. On that, <laughs> um, and I won't go long winded about, about it, people can go for these things up for themselves if they wish. But any skill that requires manual dexterity, like our own craft, you can achieve something after a very short period of time. But if you want to get to the level where you've embedded those skills enough that you wouldn't forget them, 
the average time to do that is about 10,000 hours. Now, I love bringing my science and my craft together. Um, 10,000 hours is 40 hours a week for five years. It's what a traditional apprenticeship was. That's, that's, that's all it was. But what we like to say to people is, craft is a bus journey. And you decide at what stop you want to get off on. So if you hear somebody like us talking about 10,000 hours, and you go, oh, I'm not going to do that. They don't have to do that. If for somebody that's just going out for a few hours on a Saturday afternoon and making a piece, that's craft, that's creativity, that's their boss stuff, if you, if you like. If they want to go further, they just uh, spend more time. Yeah, and I think there's always a big step at the beginning which is overwhelming. Um, so even with, for instance, the bowl turning, but I'm sure it's the same with a lot of other things, the fact that you have to get a lathe and look at this machine and then you have to source the timber and which is the tool and how do you sharpen the tool and there's so many different aspects to put it together and to be able to put it together to make five bowls by myself, it's very easy to do it in your workshop with the two of you there. Mm. <laughs> That's simple. But to get the headspace to be able to do it, and now because I parked it for a while, it's completely gone. It's there somewhere, but I... <laughs> no, it's there. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's like, um, you know, when you learn to cycle, you, know, yes. you never forget. No, you, you don't might, forget. You might wobble it. a little bit when you get back up. And yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's a, it's a serious point you, you raise, and you very often in Europe we look to America and things are not always better. Some things definitely are better. And partly because of our population density, partly because of credit insurance, and partly, partly because of just custom and practice, what you have in America that you don't have here, that in the bigger cities in America, there will be uh, a place that's staffed by professional craftspeople. So if you want to make your bedside locker, instead of having to set up your entire workshop, you can go along and obviously you pay some fee as a rent and they'll help you source the materials, but there's somebody there to help you. And when you've finished your whatever project or whatever it is, then you can, you can go home. And that just doesn't exist yeah. here. And we would agree, we would agree with you that we would have literally hundreds and hundreds of people. And the initial cost of the equipment is, is daunting sometimes. But more than that, and increasingly more than that, is the actual space to do it. Mm -hmm. Because if you're in a small house, even if it has a garage, it's probably going to be a laundry room or a play area for the kids. So it's the space that's often the biggest problem for me. Yeah, I never considered that because we have, obviously, I've got it the side of our farm shed, so that's yeah. fine. Yeah. And also the lathe was given to my husband years ago and he gave it to me, so I didn't have to purchase that. Yeah. And he's a mechanically minded, so he managed to put the plug on and get it going. <laughs> so yeah. I had a lot of um, breaks yeah. in my you know, journey to actually get a bit of timber on the lathe. Yeah. And then every five minutes, I think I was emailing you, you know, at the time, like, oh, what would I <laughs> <laughs> But, um, 
So, oh my goodness, I love the deep dives into creativity and, you know, what's behind the whole process. And it, I'm, I'm really glad you've been able to share that with people because, you know, teaching a craft is, uh, you're obviously very skilled, both of you, and everybody knows that, but the heart behind it is mm-hmm. what I think people like to hear. Well, thank you. But uh, we have a tagline. And it's Bridge that came up with it. And the tagline on, on our, our information is, and the tree lives on, because that's what we're trying to do. You take something, you know, what, one of the, if you asked me what was the nicest things about trees, well, I'll tell you the saddest thing is you go to a petrol station, you see a bag of logs that could have been made into something and it's just going to be burned. So, and the tree lives on means that we take the take the wood because essentially the wood we're using even though it's not bought as firewood would have ended up as firewood and we change it into something and the tree lives so sustainability wise what's your um, thinking on that so sustainability is is really important and it's really old-fashioned that's what we used to do is um, we used to source all our food stuff and our products locally. They were made locally and that kept a local economy. If you use um, online shopping, we of course use it like everybody else but if we all go online shopping, all we're doing is increasing the carbon footprint and not depriving our own economy. So our own little example of what we mean is we use trees, fallen trees, storm damaged trees, and um, they come from a tree surgeon. If we didn't buy the wood, it would end up as firewood. Wood turning by its nature generates huge volumes of, of waste. If you think of your bowl, about 90% of that timber ended up on, on the floor. So all our shavings go to a local uh, stables and all the waste from the stables goes for mulch for a landscape gardener. So there's a, a, an example of something being circular and everything staying local. And it leads to our tagline and the tree lives on. Well, that's a beautiful, beautiful place to end. Um, unless there's anything you'd like to say to the listeners, or um, we'll obviously put your details in the show notes. And what's the website if you just wanted to say it out? Just our name. AmbroseandBreeze.com. AmbroseandBreeze.com. So thank you so much for the lessons and thank you for your time today. Today's news from Borough Nature Sanctuary. We have had great feedback from visitors who have enjoyed the new audio interpretive winders with associated art installations. On Saturday, we hosted a group from Tourism Spain and it was satisfying that they were able to enjoy learning about our conservation projects in their own language. The Borough flora is just starting to peek out with spring gentians flowering on the hills and in the botany bubble, and primroses, cowslips and wood violets in full bloom. The rosettes of orchid leaves promise a great display in the next few weeks. Our new way markers are proving successful on the trails and the updated map created by the scientists from Trier University who visited us last spring, is a very useful addition. Biodiversity is in the news with the results of the Citizens' Assembly on Biodiversity, published on the 5th of April. 
It contains over 150 recommendations that have the potential to dramatically transform Ireland's relationship with the natural environment. Central to the report's recommendations is the need for the state to take prompt, decisive and urgent action to address biodiversity loss and restoration and provide leadership in protecting Ireland's biodiversity for future generations. Further, the report expresses the Assembly's clear disappointment at the state's failure to adequately fund, implement and enforce existing laws and policies. The report states explicitly that this must change and that sufficient funding and increased expenditure should be provided for enforcement and implementation of national legislation and EU biodiversity-related laws and directives. The members heard that the government has declared a biodiversity crisis, but has seen little evidence that this has been taken seriously. The report also proposes a series of changes to the constitution to ensure people have a right to a clean, healthy and safe environment. In addition, the assembly recommends that nature be provided with protections within the constitution to allow it to continue to provide the necessities of life, including food, clean, fresh water and air, as well as providing a clean and healthy environment for well-being now and in the future. Such recommendations follow a growing international trend, highlighting the necessity to protect nature in order to protect humans. <laughs>